The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. We come now to a portion of the story where everything's going to change. For the last 14 weeks, we've been focused on Joseph, the amazing story of a man who who went through one hardship after another, yet always remained faithful to God. He was a man who endured things that most of us have never endured, from being hated by family, being sold into slavery, being set apart, all the things he's gone through from false accusations and jail and and everything else. But now the story shifts to the brothers. And quite frankly, that ought to excite every one of us. Because we have a group of men who are vile, angry, sinful men. And we're going to see over the next several weeks that God loved them as much as he did Joseph. And in our humanness, that's hard to grasp when we realize all the sinful things that they've done. But now we find this tremendous love being laid out before these brothers. So as we get into the story now, think deeply about what you're going to witness and hear and see in these next few weeks as God takes hateful, wretched men and loves them to repentance. What could be better? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 42, and beginning at verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brother came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now, it's interesting that they didn't just bow. They bowed with their faces to the ground. In other words, their faces were in the dirt. I mean, we're talking full-on bowing. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now, one of the things I like to do, especially when I'm working on a message like this, is I like to just pause and put myself in their position. And if you can just think for a minute, you are Joseph. What are you feeling right now? The last time you saw these faces, they were looking at you in anger and hatred and with murderous eyes. And now suddenly, they're before you on their faces. I can just feel Joseph's heart beating out of his chest. Have you ever been so startled that you feel like you can feel your blood rushing through your veins and maybe even hear it? Have you ever experienced something like that? I remember years ago in college, I, I was a camp counselor one year at a camp. And I was in a cabin with a bunch of boys and their bunks lined two walls and my bunk was right at the door. You know, want to make sure these kids don't sneak out. <clears throat> but it was late at night there had been a bad car accident that night, and I just, I couldn't sleep. I kept having that on my mind. And about two in the morning, 
I heard footsteps running behind the cabin. So <clears throat> naturally, my heart starts to dun, 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 you know, what's going on? And then I try to calm myself by thinking, well, it's just probably one of the counselors fooling around or some of the kids and, you know, play it off. But then I heard the steps run up behind the cabin. So I got up quickly. I went to the back wall. And I got up right next to the window. And <clears throat> the windows had been frosted for, for vanity. But the boys had scratched off a little hole about this big to see out. So I'm sitting here at the window, and I start to peek out. And just as I speak, peek it out, a prowler is peeking right in. And we came face to face. I wanted to fly through that window. But, you know, <clears throat> the, the spirit just said, calm, you'll scare the boys. So I went out the front door, and as I started running, apparently someone else had heard it. And a couple of us went chasing this guy fast as we could go down the, down the dirt road. But he had his car sitting there with the door open. And he got in ahead of us and got away. We got the license plate. They got him that night. But I will never forget as long as I live. I literally can tell you, I heard my blood. From head to toe, it was just flowing. And when I look at Joseph, <clears throat> even though he's not scared here, I can just imagine what's going through him. God said this would happen 22 years ago. And now it's happening. And there they are in the dirt in front of him. Let's continue. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, your spies. And by this, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring the others while you remain confined and your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Now, two weeks ago, <clears throat> when we left our story of the study of Joseph, we referred to the prodigal son. And you recall that uh, God awakened this son by hunger when he was in a far land. And Jesus told the story how he came to his senses, and he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father, and say to him, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the remarkable thing is, he did exactly what he said he would do. He got up, he went home to his father, and he confessed his sin, Luke 15. This is what the feel of need should do when God sends it to us. It should awaken us to our condition and cause us to confess our sins before God. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work, and God has to ratchet up the pressure. 
But he's doing it because of his divine love for you and I. And this is what the feel of need should do. It should draw us. It should bring us to him in, for mercy. But I want us to see the tough words here. God was to apply tough words through Joseph to his older brothers. They had been guilty of a great sin of having sold their younger brother Joseph into slavery. But although they had not been entirely successful in suppressing the memory, you recall that when the father sent them to Egypt, they looked at each other with that guilty gaze. But they had nevertheless suppressed the memory enough so that it was going to take very, very harsh treatment to bring it to the surface and to bring confession. Without the pinch of physical want, they would never have gone to Egypt. In fact, they would have gone anywhere else on the face of the earth if they thought they could find food. But even having been forced to Egypt by the famine, they would still have never confessed their sin without increasing pressure from God and God forcing their confession to the surface. You see, one of the principles that we begin to find in God dealing with Joseph is that when he loves you, you're not getting away. The circumstances will get harder and more difficult until you confess and fall and bow at his feet in confession and repentance. But the second of these devices, after the pinch of physical want, was the pain of harsh treatment at the hands of Joseph. Before long, this was to become harsh treatment of a physical sense as he would throw them into prison. And the story tells us that when the brothers came down to Egypt to, to buy grain, Joseph recognized them and spoke very harshly to him. Uh, look back at verses 6 and 7. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and he was one who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Someone might think that rough words really wouldn't do anything. In fact, what's that little children's Ryan, we always say that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. <laughs> I think of the many untruths that are taught to children, and this may be one of the most vile. It's not that sticks and stones don't hurt, they do. But it does not hurt nearly as much as harsh words. And if harsh words aren't dealt with, they can stay with you for a lifetime. Words, harsh words, have been spoken and, and dealt deeply with us. We can, we can go through famine. We can have all kinds of difficult physical things and get over it. But words are often taken to the grave by some people in the way they're handled. Now, words hurt, but words also work. And this is why God uses these words to unsettle us and to awaken us. And if you've ever been reading a passage in your Bible and suddenly a verse jumps out at you and points you to a sin, you want to just kind of turn the page. But God uses tough words, difficult words to get our attention. So I want us to see that the words here are really of God. 
And words are what Joseph, under God's leading, uses to bring his brothers to their senses. Some writers have been critical to Joseph at this point, suggesting that his decision to conceal himself and deal harshly with them was unmerciful, that he was being too hard on them. But Joseph was operating under the direction of God, and he knew that it was going to take more than just a quick revelation of himself to get to the heart of the matter. And we must remember, first of all, that these were very rough men. If you recall, years before this, when Joseph was a boy, they had hidden their identity from the Shechemites who had violated their sister Diana. And they went in amongst them as friends and then wound up slaughtering the whole village. Their father said that they had made him a stench to the Canaanites and the Perizzites in Genesis 34. Reuben had dishonored his father by sleeping with his concubine Bilhah in in Genesis 35. Judah had gone into his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking her a prostitute and making her pregnant. These are the kinds of guys we're dealing with now. They didn't just treat Joseph bad. They treated everybody bad. They were selfish, self-centered. They would do what they want, take what they want, with no conviction, no guilt. And yet... These men were loved by God. You see, the fascinating truth that emerges from this is that the amazing love of God has no boundaries. It further shows us that you don't earn God's love. His love is his choice for you. And that's where the great mercy comes through. Sometimes we think, well, you know, Boy, what I've done in my life, surely God doesn't want me. Well, he wanted these brothers. And he wants you. He died for you. That's one of the amazing portions of Scripture that says, while you were still a sinner, he died for you. The amazing truth of God never ends. Besides, there's the matter of Joseph's being God's man. He had been honored more than once as a prophet of God. God had spoke to him, guided him, protected him, kept him from sin. Surely he's not leaving him to his own devices now, but was rather acting as God's agent to awaken the consciences of these brothers. His words were God's voice to them. And this is probably what we are supposed to understand by the reminder of Joseph that dream about the brothers in verse 9. More than 22 years had passed since he had that dream where he and his brothers were working in a field and his chief rose up and theirs gathered around and bowed down to him. And again, he dreamed that the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed to him. This dream was fulfilled for the first time right here. Verse 6, And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. So what we're now embarking on is the literal story of amazing grace. The amazing story of a God who so loved sinful man. And we see it beginning right here. When Joseph saw them bowing, he suddenly remembered those dreams. I came across an old 1800s preacher and writer, 
Robert Candlish, and he wrote, <clears throat> in his opinion, if Joseph were left to himself, he would have revealed his identity in a moment, but that he was restrained by God who was using him for the salvation of his brothers. And here's what he wrote, quote, it was the Lord that brought the dreams to his remembrance, and Joseph, I am persuaded, recognized the Lord in this. At once, he perceived that his affair, the affairs of his brethren coming to him is of the Lord. It is not a common occurrence. It is not a coincidence. The Lord is here, in this place, in this business, and therefore the Lord must regulate the whole and fix the time and the manner of the discovery. He was convinced that the brothers were under the guidance of God and that Joseph spoke according to God's words. And I think that's very clear. I tend to agree with F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer suggests that Joseph probably repeated exactly the scene that took place at the mouth of the pit when his brothers first threw him in. Now, we can't really prove it because the scripture doesn't actually say it, but when you consider the whole of the story, I think it's reasonable to believe this. I can imagine the brothers seeing Joseph coming in chapter 37 and expecting that he's here to spy out their doings and report back to their father. Now, we know for certain that his father, Jacob, sent him to check on his brothers, but the reality was he wanted to check on and make sure they were okay and see if there was any needs. But the brothers in their sinfulness, they see him coming as a spy to tattletale and run back to their father, which can only make you wonder what they were up to. We're not told this completely, but it is reasonable to think that they may have done so. And if they did, it would explain why Joseph immediately thought of accusing them of the same thing. You are spies. That's what the brothers said of him those years ago. And if the brothers had accused Joseph of having been a spy for their father, the lad would have certainly protested and said, no, 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 I'm not a spy. I'm here for your welfare. I'm here to check on you, which is the same things the brothers are forced to say now. Look at verse 10 again. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now we can further carry the parallel because as the brothers cast Joseph into the pit, now Joseph is casting them into prison. And this approach to the brothers on Joseph's part would have made a powerful appeal to their conscience. In fact, it is shortly after their imprisonment that the brothers, for the very first time, confess openly. Verse 21 then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. You see what's being accomplished here? The situation, the words, the direction. Now it's starting to come back to them. What's really going on? I wonder... How often has the word of God cried out for you to turn and forsake your sin? But like the brothers, we put ourselves first. This story is not just about Joseph and his brothers. This story is about God and you and me. 
You see, God loved these brothers and he loves you and he loves me. And he will stop at nothing to bring us to repentance and then to mercy. If Joseph was reenacting the scene at the pit, perhaps even repeating to the brothers the words that they used against him, which had been deliberately etched in his memory, then it is understandable that the brothers begin to come around at this point. Joseph's words were carefully calculated words that proved effective in bringing these brothers to confession and repentance. But this brings us now to a very critical point because it brings us to our true brother. This is why we must never resent or resist when God uses something difficult in his word to get our attention. The reality is God hates sin. Therefore, the word of God, which reflects his holy character, exposes our sin and calls for repentance. Comfort? Yes. The Bible contains great comfort and promises to all of us. But the comfort and promises are for those who confess their sins and obey God and pursue righteousness. And this is what is going to take place over the next several weeks in the life of these brothers. God will use words in your life to bring you to repentance. Consider the strong language used by God when he gave the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 2, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your brother. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything else that's your neighbor's. And then later when Jesus came, he would say that, if you just think these things, you are guilty of sin. You see, God wanted to establish the boundary. This is who I am. I am completely holy. You want to be holy? Do this. 
But what did man discover very quickly? Couldn't do it. In our sinful state, nobody could do it. Who could keep all of that? Who could keep their mind pure all the time with everything that's flooding in? So God, rich in mercy, sent his son to satisfy the law for us. And because of that amazing grace and love, he died to pay the price and to fulfill the law. And therefore, the law for you and I is null and void as it pertains to coming to Christ. All we need to do is to trust his finished work on Calvary. That's how we come to Christ. So we are instructed to live according to God's law, not to be righteous, but because he has made us righteous through his shed blood. Now, being righteous and having the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, how are we then to live? How are we now supposed to live? Romans 8, 4. In order that the righteousness requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, this is the beauty of the exchange life. When I surrender myself to the leading of the spirit, he guides me in all truth. The law has been satisfied through Christ. Now I can live according to his will because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. That's why we always say he must increase and I must decrease. Because my life now in Christ is about him. He is the one I live for. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And you see, this is the beautiful picture when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. He created them for fellowship. But sin severed it. Before the foundation of the world, God had ordained these works that you and I should walk in them. But what can we do now? It's severed. So Christ came to take our place and to fulfill the penalty of the law. Now, with that relationship restored, we have the ability through Christ and through the Spirit to now walk in those very works that were set up before the foundation of the world. And therein lies the perfect remedy for the Holy Spirit-filled life. He lives through me. When I try to live on my own, it's a constant failure. Constant failure. But when he is real living through me, it is all of him. And he restores that walk. Sometimes when we're often confused about certain things and how do I live here and how do I do that, the key is not in how do I do it. The key is how do I allow him to do it through me? That's the secret of the spirit-filled life. It's no more I, but Christ who lives for me. That's why Paul said in that famous Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. I died on the cross when he died. The old Craig Malcolm died that day 2,000 years ago. And when I finally came as a high school student and began to understand what had been done for me, and I gave my love to Christ, what happened was he took my life. And now it's no more I but Christ.
who lives in me. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Because he so loved me that even in my sinfulness, he made a way for me to escape. Because he loved me that much. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, there is a free gift being offered to you. A free gift of eternal life purchased by the blood of Christ. You can't work for it. You can't try to be good for it. You can't go through all those verses in Exodus I just read and say, okay, I'll try to do these because you cannot do it. It's impossible. But the gift of eternal life is that free gift that washes away all our sins. And as I've said so many times before, when you take Christ as your Savior, the Father looks at you through the blood of Christ as washed pure. Can you imagine that? You think back of some of the things you've done. Or maybe you've always been real good. Maybe you have a pure life and you're just one of those amazing people. If you are, I want to talk to you afterwards. But the reality is, when we look at our lives and realize that God sees us pure and washed and clean, you see why it's important for all of us to cut people a break when people sin and hurt us? You see why it's so important for us to go to Christ and say, Lord, you forgave me of all my sins. They're struggling. I'm going to love them anyway. I'm going to forgive them anyway. I'm going to give them the same love you gave me. And I want that love to permeate their whole lives. I want to be Jesus for them. And do you know that's exactly what Joseph did all that time? Sold into slavery? Okay, here I am. I'm going to be the best slave I can possibly be for God's glory. Falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison, completely innocent. All right, going to be the best prisoner I can be. Interprets a dream, thinks he's going to get out, forgotten for two more years. But he keeps his nose to the grindstone, serving God and forgiving everybody around him. And then he becomes prime minister. And now the story shifts to these wicked brothers. And because God, before the foundation of the world, chose to love those 11 wicked brothers, he's going to do what's necessary to bring them to repentance so they can be with their brother Joseph forever. Man, that's grace and that's mercy. Amazing grace. You see, the key to understand here is if you have not confessed your sin, especially if you have not believed on Christ, I tell you that your sins are the sins of the brothers. But here's what's amazing. You and I, we have a brother. He's not afraid to call you brother who has never been concerned about anything but your good. But when he came and took on the form of a man, he became our kin. He became one of us, our brother. 
And when he redeemed us, that's why the scripture says he became our kinsman redeemer. This brother died to secure our eternity. You've accused him of spying out your hidden sins to destroy you. You may have driven him from your life, but your sins crucified him. Have your desires been under your own leading and your own desires? You must come to the place where you plead guilty concerning your brother. That's hard. That's painful to make that kind of confession. But once you confess that sin, the most amazing thing happens. He floods your soul with grace and forgiveness and mercy. You now belong to him for eternity. That where he is, you and I may be also. And when you realize sitting here, for those of you who have accepted Christ, realizing that your eternity has already begun. You're just in a different home right now. But you know that when you depart this life, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord. But if you're here this morning and if you've never trusted Christ, your eternity is completely different. And people talk about hell and fire and all the things that will be part of hell. The greatest, most, uh, the most awful reality will be to knowing that you're eternally separated from God. That will hurt far more than any flame. He must increase. I got to decrease. What good is if you, if you profit the whole world but lose your own soul? What does it care if your career goes where you want it to go at the expense of living for God? What does it matter if you try to achieve everything but don't walk with God? What does it matter? Because one day we will stand at that Bema seat to receive the rewards that we have done for him. Will there be any? He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. I pray this morning that God would burden all of us from this amazing story and know that we have the privilege and the opportunity from this moment, this very moment now, to walk with God by the Holy Spirit. It's that simple, it's that clear, it's that offered. Life won't be easy, but walking with God and knowing that he is behind everything gives us immense peace. Do you want that life? You can have it this morning. Let's pray. Father, I, as I come to you, Lord, and I'm just overwhelmed with the amazing grace that you've showed this brothers. 
All these weeks, we've saw, seen the amazingness of Joseph. What an amazing man. A man who only one of two in the whole Bible where no sin is mentioned of. And we, we talk how wonderful it is, but part of us t- looks at him and goes, how could I ever be Joseph? Well, the fact is, we can't apart from Christ. But the amazing part of the story now is that vile, wretched men were loved by you. And your son, Jesus Christ, died to secure their eternity. May we leave here this morning overwhelmed with the reality of mercy and grace and walk with you from the time we leave our pew until we come back next Sunday. May Jesus Christ be glorified. And all God's people said, amen. God bless.